Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Rank Squad and welcome to Ranks FC. This is your favourite football podcast back for another week. My name is Jack Collins and I will be your host today. And joining me is the Rank God, Mr. Sam Ty. Welcome back. Hello, my friend. How oh, are thank you? you very much. All feeling oh, better great. after uh, after last week's shenanigans? Yes, I was better in about a day. Thank you. I've, and then the next five days, I just uh, I just I just relaxed, with the exception of your birthday drinks, where I let loose again. Yeah, well, it was it could have gone wrong, but we're all back and uh, firing on all cylinders, so can't complain about that. And of course, our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. Hello, mate. You're right. Yeah, not too bad, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I enjoyed your birthday drinks, mate. It was a good day. Well, we all got to go and see. Well. Dean and I got but, to go and see Fulham bleep black. Which we would have done it. Which we, we would have do done anyway. anyway. <laughs> but um, we brought loads of people with us. Sam was meant to join us, but unfortunately the trains didn't work. So Sam didn't get to see Nico Williams hit the bar from the halfway line. Um, mm. or, or a comfortable victory for Marco Silva's Mighty Whites, who are now 12 <laughs> points clear at the top of the Honestly, championship. I don't, Great I don't think I've ever seen as much fuss about a shot that didn't go in. <laughs> well, Unreal. I mean, I don't think I've seen as much fuss about a routine 2-0 victory over the team, you know, who's fourth. I think, it's, Dean, you mentioned it, 9-0 over Blackburn on aggregate this season. You take it, I would say, considering, yeah. they're, uh, considering they're only a couple of places below Fulham in the league. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's our average scoreline over most teams at this point, isn't it? So it's fine. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, all right, all right. This all right. isn't a Fulham this podcast. Isn't a Fulham podcast. Let's move on. Let's start with things we love, shall we? And uh, Dean, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so Nico Williams had a shot from the halfway line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm actually going to be really controversial here and cross a divide that I don't cross many times. And I'm going into the other half of Fulham where Chelsea are. And I'm going to praise something about Chelsea, which very rarely happens. But you know me, I'm a nice guy. I'll, I'll, I'll give praise where it's due. And this is kind of praise, actually, but it's, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. Because, look, since 2017 and Diego Costa left Chelsea, they've been searching for a new striker, basically. And they've tried various things, including spending what over £150 million on Timo Werner and Dromelo Lukaku, both of which haven't worked out. But in the meantime... They signed one of the best young footballers in the world, who was a midfielder, they thought. No, Kai Havertz, it turns out, is Chelsea's new number nine, and he might become one of the best number nines in world football for the next 10 years, as it sits. Like People describe him as a false nine. I'm not even sure Kai Havertz is a false nine. I think he might just be a number nine. Like This guy is... He's hitting the kind of levels that we all thought he could. And to be honest, I think one of the reasons I am loving the form of Kai Havertz at Chelsea right now is because it kind of proves us three right. Like when he came into English football and uh, he'd been on our radar, obviously, and you two put him on my radar for sure. And I, and I watched a bit of him before he arrived and he was different class at Leverkusen. Chelsea obviously did spend a lot of money on him. I think it rises to what, £89 million. Um but obviously, it took him a little while to settle, and he wasn't abysmal or anything like that. But he, Chelsea fans were unconvinced, let's say, that that he was going to be worth that outlay. They weren't sure where he fitted into this team. Now they are in no doubt about this guy's talent and um, his goals against Burnley. Just the latest moments, really, that show that well, he's one of the first names on this team sheet. But more than that, 
he is Chelsea centre forward now. Like Lukaku didn't get a look in for Burnley away. I mean, that's a big blow for somebody who's just cost it was a hundred million pounds. Timo Werner gets on the pitch, but ultimately he's not going to get the position that we all thought he would play when he first came into Chelsea. So yeah, the thing I love is Kai Havertz emerging as the superstar we all thought he was going to be and taking over the mantle of Chelsea's new number nine in very unexpected circumstances. Yeah, I mean, Sam, we saw him play a bit here for Leverkusen. He played at parts out wide, at parts in the 10, at parts in the nine. He kind of played everywhere for that Leverkusen side. And he was just the main man and things went through him. So he was able to do all of those different roles. Obviously, he came to Chelsea. There was a little bit of that kind of moving away from home element and, and, and settling in a new environment during a pandemic in a pace where we think he had long COVID. Um, it, it all didn't quite click. And then suddenly he scored the winner in the Champions League final. And, and there was a little bit of a turn on, on this. And I think a lot of the time there was people going, why is Havertz playing? You know, a lot of Chelsea fans were saying he's not as good as Mason Mount. Um, now, at the time, I remember trying to back that up and defend that and being like, he is, he is. He's just, he's just <laughs> settling, right? I, guarantee this geezer has the ceiling above that. Now, Mason Mount is a wonderful footballer. Let's not take away from that. But Kai Havertz, when he came in for that kind of fee, there was a reason that we thought that was going to be the case, right? And and ultimately, he's now starting to find his feet and, and be comfortable. He's already hinted a couple of times that he likes playing that nine role because it gives him the freedom to kind of move around. But also, he fits what Thomas Tuchel wants in a nine, a little bit more perhaps than Romelu Lukaku or Timo Werner because he is that kind of drifting player and he's able to drop in a link play and bring other players in as opposed to going direct, which is something that Chelsea just don't really do. Yeah, I think the big difference is that, um, you know, Frank Lampard didn't really know what to do with Kai Havertz and Thomas Tuchel has a very clear idea. Now, whether that's because he knew him quite well from Germany or whether that's just because he's better at analysing a player's strengths and figuring out how to fit them into a system, I don't know. Could be a bit of both. Could be one, could be the other. But Thomas Tuchel has figured it out and he's done it to the detriment of Romelu Lukaku. And it's a big call. Like, it's a big statement from Thomas Tuchel, from a Chelsea manager who never feels 100% secure <laughs> at any one time to leave out a 100 million pound striker that's freshly signed in the prime of his career to prioritize the development and eventual starring of someone like Kai Havertz who did have a really rough first season and was being criticized by the fans and was not the popular choice and like you said it turned for him in the Champions League final I mean it did for a bit he lived off that at the beginning of this season then he went a little bit quiet again and the questions were reopened just ever so slightly. And then these last couple of months have just, well, shut everybody up again, I guess. Yeah, it does feel like that. And and, and look, here's, there's kind of different things we're looking at here, but Kai Havertz is an intriguing footballer, right? He's such a, you know, technically gifted player, sure. But he also ghosts into positions that I, I don't think anyone kind of expects. And look, the fact that he scores this header and, you know, against Burnley, you're not expecting Kai Havertz to pop up here. And yes, he's a wonderful header of the ball. And yes, he, you know, he is tall and agile and can win headers. But, you know, you're going, right, this is Burnley. You're expecting Kai Havertz to do technical gifted things on the deck as opposed to in the air but the way he just goes into space the way that he manages to sort of disappear and reappear again I think is remarkable to be perfectly honest with you and he has that trait that knack of just being able to ghost in places where people just can't see him and I think that's amazing for someone who is actually quite a big bloke um he, he's a you know sometimes you say oh a nippy wing has disappeared and reappeared again you don't tend to find it with, with people who are over six foot but he has that gift that trait that maybe someone like Thomas Muller has, has kind of prioritized across the course of his career yeah that's that's not being diminutive that's being 
extremely clever and boasting like elite levels of timing to your game and arriving in space at the right time. And it's what separates some of the very best. And you can do it in certain ways and certain players are very good at it. Not that many are as good as Kai Havertz is in terms of timing his runs and timing his movements. And that's that's the secret. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Sam, what's your thing we love this week? What I loved this week was uh, the legendary Roberto Carlos lighting up a very sleepy Shropshire village in the UK. Now, this is a very strange story, but I absolutely loved it. In fact, I was obsessed with it for a couple of days. Shropshire is a place that I don't think that many people outside the UK will actually know where it is. Uh, It's kind of wedged between Wales and Birmingham, and not very much happens there. I think that's probably fair to say. But last week, something did happen, possibly the biggest event in the county's history. Roberto Carlos turned up and played for a Sunday league side at Hanwood Village Hall because the team that plays there won a competition with eBay to get Roberto Carlos to turn out for them for a game in a friendly for one weekend. This is absolutely brilliant. I can't decide what the best bit is, so I'm just going to list it all off for you and you can decide. First of all, they put him on the bench. (laughs) I think that's the best bit. That's my favourite part of the entire. I mean, look, maybe it's because he's you know in his four season. No, and, if you, you don't know, go training, to... you don't start. You've clearly not played yeah, Sunday yeah, league yeah. football in a while, Sam. If you don't turn up to training, yeah. you can't start the weekend. I don't care who you are. Yeah, maybe they're on like a big win streak, and there's no need to change the team. You know, it's one of those. Um, bit of a guy have that situation with Lukaku, but they put him on the bench. Huge power move, but he came on in the second half. He scored a penalty, um, which obviously get on the score sheet. Lovely stuff. Turned up to the pub afterwards. Good form, Roberto. Love it. Love it. Signed some shirts, took some photos, bit of banter with the lads. Doesn't speak English, but yeah, three hours worth of banter over beers. Lovely stuff. Then he got behind the bar, started pulling pints. Um, Okay, stepping it up a notch. And then he video calls Sergio Ramos and Ramos picks up. And you've got the whole pub, all the lads from the team, all video calling Sergio Ramos. It must have been the best day of their lives. Imagine this. This is an absolutely incredible experience and genuinely like for a Sunday league team, just like a bolt out of the blue and and, and something that dreams are, are surely made of. Yeah, um, incredible. I do, I do enjoy the fact that they were like, he came on, he was like, I'm clearly going to take this penalty, lads. And they were like, yeah, all right, fine. I suppose, I suppose so. I think the, yeah. original, the usual penalty taker was pretty annoyed to start with. Yeah. Um, but then he was, oh, fair enough. He was like, it is Roberto Carlos. Uh, <laughs> it was a World Cup winner. I mean, can you imagine, though, the, the scene if you got the free kick on the edge of the box? You'd be like, ah, oh, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? Do you reckon he can do it? <laughs> do the thing. Do the like, well, swervy probably thing. Not. Probably not, because he, he, he's he got a reputation built off that free kick, but he was not really one of the best free kick takers, was he, in terms of volume and goals scored? Yeah, um, but still, never, you'd be giving it to him and be like, do the swervy thing. Try uh, it. Go on. Yeah, yeah, give it a go. See what or happens. Or even just smash it, because... You're not really going to stand in the way of that at Sunday league level, I don't think. No. Maybe you will. Maybe you want to be that lad that well, stood in the way of Roberto one, Carlos's one free One for the grandkids, took, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, no, just a really nice story, actually. Um, Eni Aluko is also going to be playing for a Sunday league team. Quite excited about that one as well. But it's been a, mm. a fun little campaign, this, uh, from eBay. And and yeah, look, it was nice to see. And, and obviously went viral and everyone had a good time. So very much enjoyed this story. Now that I've retired, maybe I could do it. Yeah, maybe you can. Get your get your bids in to Ranks FC to see if Dean Jones can come and turn out for your Sunday league team. Um, he definitely won't start. Um, I'm definitely up for the part where you're on the bench and go to the pub. I'm definitely up for those parts. Yeah, he'd probably score a penalty as well. That's about... Look, you're basically the same, Dean, apart from you never a left back. Um, right, I'm going to finish our things we love. And I just want to talk about Arsenal briefly um, because Arsenal are on the best run of form in Europe's top 
five leagues uh, in their last 10 games, which is pretty remarkable, actually, considering the fact that over the course of this season, there have been streaky, shall we say. And look, we talked about this on Monday's podcast, on our Ultras podcast, uh, which goes out every Monday afternoon, dissects the weekend's action from across the Premier League, Serie A, La Liga, uh, Germany, France, Portugal, MLS. We, we we do cover the bases on a Monday. So it's if you're interested in, uh, in getting brilliant. involved with our Monday post box, uh, the link to join our Ultras is, all, as always, in the description of this one. It's great fun. Um, and we think it's highly worth it. Um, but I just wanted to kind of touch back on Arsenal on the main pod because... I just think that it's really, really, really impressive how Arteta has developed his own team here. And now it finally looks like he's got to a place where he's really happy with with what he's kind of brought through. And and we're seeing this team link up. You know, we, we're seeing Aubameyang go to Barcelona, start brilliantly. Um, and, and all of that is, is incredibly important, I think, because what nobody was saying when Aubameyang left was this player isn't good. It was that he doesn't fit what Mikel Arteta is trying to do with this team, is trying to achieve with this side. Um, and since he has his side together, this front three of, uh, well, front four of Martinelli, Erdegaard, Saka, Lacazette, and obviously Smith-Rowe as well, coming in and out of, uh, of this team, there's there's so much of a, you know, a buzz oh, about Nicola what Pepe Arsenal is trying to get in there too. Even Nicolas Pepe looks like he's uh, <laughs> he's having a good time again. Exactly. Um, but I do think that there's just something to be said about the fact that Arsenal feel like they've really turned a corner and where the rest of the team's battling for the top four feel like they're on a downward trajectory you know man united spurs wolves have had a terrible time of it in the last couple of weeks you know you're looking at this and going okay what happens even west ham have have fallen off the pace a little bit arsenal feel like they're on a one-way ticket to that fourth spot at the moment now obviously it's not a done deal there's still lots of games left and things can turn as we've seen they have been streaky but of the whole I, i really do think that this arsenal side are in the ascendancy that they will get fourth and I've just loved watching Martin Erdegaard play football recently. He, he's just a glorious watch. And we said this when he came in, right? That There's very few players at his age who play in the role that he does, who are as technically gifted and as competent as Martin Erdegaard is. And we saw that year at Real Sociedad where he was just sublime um, for a year. So much so that Real Madrid cut his loan short, brought him back, then didn't play him, then loaned him to Arsenal, then sold him to Arsenal. Um, but it does feel like he's really kind of setting the t- the pace and the tone for this Arsenal team. The fact he he kind of is that leader on the pitch. He is becoming, you know, Arteta's kind of go-to guy in terms of getting everyone else moving and directing and, you know, organising through the middle. And I- I've really, really enjoyed watching them. Now, Arsenal aren't perfect. They conceded two to Watford at the weekend, although one of them was a kind of goal you can't really account for. Um, a ridiculous bicycle kick. Um, but on the whole, I just think that Arsenal have been really, really impressive. That Erdegaard has been glorious. Saka has been glorious. The Martinelli's coming into his strength. And I'm really enjoying watching this Arsenal ascendancy at the moment. Well, let's hope you've not given them the kiss of death like you did Wolves, mate, three weeks ago. You mm. were like, Wolves are brilliant. They're definitely getting fourth. Three losses in a row. Yeah. <laughs> Wolves, I do, do yeah. love this Wolves team and I really did think they were they were on it. Actually, but it was Arsenal <laughs> gave them the kiss of death, not me. They were 1-0 up. I genuinely think Wolves finished that game, see it out, and um, and they probably do go on to get it. But uh, yeah, I mean, Arsenal that might have been turned a turning point for both. Hey? That, that, that is true because... People were, I think I said at the time, were raving about Arsenal after that game. And I was like, I'm not sure about this. Like, yeah, it's been an amazing finish and the place is on fire right now. But like, can they really build on this? Can we trust Arsenal? Can we ever trust Arsenal? I think we'll find out from here because like they are in such good form at a time when Man United certainly aren't. Um, you know, Tottenham obviously um, got an easy win last night, but 
Tottenham are in this pattern of win one, lose one that we still haven't seen convincingly that they can get out of. So unbelievable opportunity for here for Arsenal. And with all those games in hand as well. Hey, all those games in hand for Arsenal as well. Yeah. And I just think like they've got, as you say, not only a front four that are in form, but two players that can come into that front four that are also actually confident and actually quite informed too. That is the complete opposite of Man United, for example. Like, yeah, they've got Sancho in form, Alanga's raw and, and fine, but the other options that United have got right now, you, you can't rely on them and it seems that there's no harmony in that squad at all. So that's another thing going for Arsenal big big time right now and massive moment for Arsenal. Like, what because is, if you it? get in that top four, like that's that's what they need and they who knows where they can go from there. They just need to get back on that level of Champions League football and build again. Um, they've been waiting for it for a while now, and this is a big moment for Arteta. Well, I think, look, you, you look at this Arsenal side and you go, right, can, if you can get that fourth spot, then can you bring in the number nine that Arteta wants? And I don't know who that is. They've got um, him. They've got Lacazette. He just has to lay things off. <laughs> <laughs> the easiest five job in football. Yeah. Five assists in four games, hasn't he? Yeah, and all of, them have been, all of them have been five-yard passes <laughs> backwards to another player. Well, he's for, is he still on pens, Lacazette? He's just made, they don't seem yeah. to get many. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. I think he is, yeah. But, no, you know, Waiting for them. You do think if they get that fourth spot and then suddenly you're looking at how this team expands into next year, maybe William Saliba finally comes back and gets that chance in defence. He's been, you know, really impressive in France. And you look at where else you go, you go, yes, they need another centre midfielder. Yes, do they need a number nine? And if they do need those things, how do you bring those things in if you're in the Champions League, can you attract a higher calibre of player, therefore, and, and and really start to push on with what seems like a really good squad, a good fit, and and looking at players that you can come in and, and kind of build even further on that? Arsenal probably aren't going to be t- challenging for a title next year, but they can kind of secure their spot in terms of kicking on and trying to catch the three teams above them that everyone else, while everyone else seems to be slipping away. So, um, yeah, massive opportunity for Arsenal and, and just really enjoying how they're playing at the moment. No, definitely, yeah. Right, after the break, we are going to be getting to our main ranking, uh, where Sam is going to be talking about defensive midfielders. Uh, I'm very excited about this. This is a deferred ranking. We were going to do this a couple of weeks ago. Um, Sam wasn't here, so we uh, we ended up doing something else. But um, we finally come round uh, to my favourite discussion, the number six discussion, and I can't wait for it. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for our main ranking. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Sam, the reins are yours. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it too. We wrote it back in January uh, and then I biffed my jaw at football, so we had to put it on ice. Uh, ironically, that's what I had to do to my jaw as well. But two months later, we are we are back in the game and we're going to talk about defensive midfielders. And quite simply, I've ranked my, my top five defensive midfielders in, in world football or number sixes. And obviously there is a, a categorization there. Like there are players that I consider to be a holding midfielder and some players that I consider not to be a holding midfielder. I guess that will all transpire as the ranking comes through. But these are the guys that I consider for this role. And um, yeah, here's my top five. I'm going to start with a really bold prediction. I hope you're ready. Strap yourselves in. I think the uh, listeners are going to be very interested to see who ranks at number one in this list. What do you think? Um, I presume it's Harrison Reed, so I think I already know it, Matt. Yeah, no, fair enough. But the real <laughs> intrigue for me was actually who's number five. Because as I figured this out, I realised there were four players that are very clearly the four of the best. And whichever order you have them in, fine, whatever, but they should be in your top five. Then there's this little bracket of players here where there's like two, three, four names that you could all probably make a good case for. And I've left out a couple of genuinely amazing players in order to put Marcelo Brozovic at number five. Okay, Brozovic from Inter Milan. 
he's had an absolutely amazing couple of years. I think his last season was his best ever season and he's been pretty good following it up as well. He's just a really, really important player at the base of Inter's midfield. And when you consider he plays at the base of the triangle and his teammates are Hakan Chalhanolu, who just shoots from literally anywhere, and Nico Barella, who drifts and drives and you know, goes wide, gets in the box constantly. It's really important for Inter to have like a really solid foundation and a base at the, in, in midfield. And that's Brozovic. That's, that's his... That's his job as the lone six. And like his tackling is good. His reading of the game is really good. But like I think his best trait is the distribution element. His 30, 40 yard passing range is absolutely magnificent. He's really calm on the ball in tight spaces as well. So he can unlock those runs and, and go go long to the big man. Last year, Lukaku, this year, Edin Dzeko. But he can also take the ball in tight spots. And I think he does a really good job in particular of helping Milan Skriniar out of when Skriniar needs to get rid of the ball he just gives it to Brozovic and he knows it's going to be okay. And having that kind of presence for a centre-back is really, really important. So I love I love Brozovic's last 12 months, 18 months. I think he's been amazing. He's uh, he's a, not maybe not recent, but I think it was only about three, four years ago he was converted into this role. He used to be much more box-to-box. I think it was Luciano Spalletti who converted him, but I may be wrong there. I'm pretty sure it, it predates Antonio Conte. Conte got the best of him, but I think it was Spalletti who saw something different in this player and dropped him back, dropped him a bit deeper, unlocked unlocked that passing range, uh, unlocked that aggression, maybe hid the fact that he wasn't quite as dynamic as some other players were uh, in the last couple of years, but has so much to offer from the base of that midfield. I think what you say there, Sam, is, is incredibly interesting because what Brozovic does is he completely and utterly balances this midfield. And he had to do so last year as well because they were doing this with Barella and Sensi or Barella and Christian Eriksen at times as well. It does feel like he is very much the lone man in, in this midfield at times being the defensive icon. And look, Inter have offered him a new deal. It does look like he might well be signing that deal. And I think that goes to show, you know, in terms of how long term it is, how important he is seen to be in this Inter setup. And he has been a real key cog, if a slightly maybe underrated cog, in this Inter ascent back to the top of Italian football. Oh, definitely, definitely a key cog. I mean, you need you need you need one structural piece at least. And you know, Lautaro runs about and, and, and drifts and, and floats. And yes, there's a target man up front with Lukaku or Jeko, depending on which year it is. Yes, there's a base of, of three defenders. But when you're playing with Lautaro and you're playing with Chalhanolu or Eriksen and you're playing with Barella, like you need someone to to hold the fort in the middle and Brozovic understands his role very clearly. And to be honest with you, it's elevated him as a player tenfold because he was a good central midfielder as a box-to-box player, as a number eight. He is an excellent number six. So Spalletti, I think, has done him a massive favour. Just shifted him about until he uh, mm. until he found the right position. But you're right, and and look, he was he did this role as well for for Croatia, and 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 I suppose that's potentially where the not the idea came from, but where, where the kind of precedent came from in that he played in a midfield with Rakitic and, and Modric, and was like, right, you have to be the kind of sensible piece here. You have to be the base of this midfield because the other two are going to get forward and, and be those kind of creative, intricate players in the final third. And he was mm. kind of given that responsibility and took you know took to it so well, obviously, during that World Cup campaign. And now we've seen it at, at club level as well. And that kind of rise through his career has been incredibly impressive, I think. And uh, I don't think it's any surprise that you've got him in here at the end. There are some obviously wonderful players who have just missed out and we'll come on to them. And actually, I think towards the end of this list, we might look at what this might look like in a couple of years' time and how, how players might have, have jumped up into it. But for now, I think mm. it might be time to move to number four. 
Yeah, I mean, look, look, there are some pretty big names that I've left out. So there is a conversation to be had there. There will be some people that get to to go, really? Brozovic at five when you left these guys out? But hey, we'll see. I'm a big fan. Anyway, into number four. This is where I've put Casemiro of Real Madrid, the enigma himself. Um, you cannot say that Casemiro is not a six, but good grief, does this man interpret the position differently to just about anybody else on this entire planet? I mean, no other number six treats the position like he does. No one else starts at the base of a midfield triangle and makes more forward runs into the box than his number eights, tries to get in the box and score headers, constantly carrying the ball ahead of the other two. It could land you in a heap of trouble if a regular team played like this, but Real Madrid have got this wonderful chemistry between Modric, Casemiro and Kroos are very, very good at recognising Casemiro's tendencies and, and, and wishes to, to sort of step forward and become a ball carrier. And they, they balance the midfield out. Again, it could it could be a disaster, but the chemistry between these three is so, so good. And the thing is, like over the years, Casemiro has scored like somewhere between five and eight goals pretty much every season. Up until now, he actually hasn't scored yet this season, which is a bit of an oddity. But when he is so effective in the box, but also so good at shielding the defence, hey, make the tactical adjustments and, and, and allow it to happen. And it's, it's great that Real Madrid have been able to find that over the years. Casemiro is a player that I can't believe hasn't got more red cards than he has. Um, there are a couple of faults in his game here and there. I think some people are a bit hard on him. I think actually I've seen even Real Madrid fans are a little bit hard on him at times. But then when he doesn't play a game or two, you really start to notice his absence. And Real Madrid have spent the last few years, I think, trying to future-proof this position. He's already forced Marcos Llorente out of the door. He's had to go to Atletico Madrid. They've got Federico Valverde, who's still waiting for this like major role in the side. Camavinga is the same. They look well-stocked. They always look like they've prepared very well. And then these three in the middle just say, no, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. We're still at the absolute top level. And, and Casemiro, at roughly 30 years of age, is far from done here. And I think he's been doing this at this level for so long that he does actually get taken for granted just a tiny bit at times. Yeah, I think he. Do you know what? I think he doesn't get as many bookings as that. He commits so many fouls. He he likes yeah. fouling people so much that it's just part of his game. People just like, oh, Casemiro's fouled someone, and he he can't foul that many people and just get yellow cards for them all the time. So, I think he kind of gets a pass for it. Also, like <laughs> because he's Brazilian, he's not going to be content with just being a defensive midfielder, is he? <laughs> it, it's not acceptable in the in the Brazilian culture of playing this game. You got you got to get forward and score some goals. But I think it counts for for the Brazil national team as well, doesn't it? He's become yeah. so influential for them. And um, yeah, I think, I think he's, he, it's just all round game and leadership too, beyond his actual ball playing skills. It's what he now brings as an all round package. I mean, I, do, I do think that there are some, there are some runs here that he makes from midfield that would give Gil, old Gilberto Silva a nosebleed. Let's be clear. It's not every Brazilian midfielder that's like this, but Casemiro, Christ, I mean, if you can do his job as well as he does, um, holding the four and balancing the midfield and give you all of these extras. Like, why not utilise that? Why not benefit from that? And I think it's it's amazing that he's been able to wrap so many different things into his game and been at the top level for like, what's seven years or something like that? Eight years, whenever he came back from Porto on loan? Yeah, I've, I've just found a quote that I, I knew I'd seen a good quote from him before talking about like the way that he cuts out play and the fact he does give away so many fouls. And uh, he said, my function is to destroy, to be heavy and to cut out <laughs> counter attacks. But I always try to arrive at the ball. I do go strong, but if I damage someone, it angers me. A foul is just part of the game, but malice isn't. These are the values my mother showed me. I am never going in to do damage nor insult a player. And I mean, 
been as nicer here. Like the guy's actually got some morals here. Like he's going in like with reason to be tough. Like that's what football's about. Like I've got no problem with that. And that's kind of what it should be. But, you know, that, that's just Casemiro at heart there. I like the nice fact thing. that he just he uses the word heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I go in to destroy and to be heavy. <laughs> feel the whole of my body taking taking this ball away from you yeah i mean it is it is very much that isn't it but there's there's also this kind of i mean look we talked about brazilian midfielders and i'd be very surprised if casemiro is the last brazilian dm on this list but um mm. when when you look at this and, and you think you know that kind of different aspect to his game sam and the fact that he does get ahead of of his two eights this isn't necessarily a recent thing, but it does feel like it's become more pronounced over the course of the last couple of years. And that might well be because Modric and Kroos have, you know, as they've got on older, changed their roles slightly to, you know, dictate from a bit deeper, to allow themselves to, you know, not necessarily need to be as mobile. That, you know, that's a mark of a wonderful player that they're able to transform their own roles uh, without necessarily losing the step or losing the ability to, to break teams apart. But it does mean that their mobility is probably a little bit more limited than what it was five, six years ago. Um, and Casemiro doesn't appear to be, and obviously he's a little bit younger, um, but he does, ab- he's then able to sort of steam past them. I do think that's a point, right? That, that maybe Maybe that's just a a notion of how well balanced and how well rounded as a player is. He can read that that's a situation that is happening, and he's able to kind of adapt his own game to make sure that that's it's not affecting the team in terms of bodies in the box, in terms of people arriving late. Um, that's an incredible thing to be able to add to your game, um, just to adapt to the players around you who you've obviously known and, and played with for so long. Yes, I agree. I agree. I definitely more of a thing recently. I think it hit its absolute peak of about a year and a half ago. I think just before. Just before the pandemic hit, actually, he was getting into the box like so many times. Every Real Madrid game I was watching, he was like a second striker, um, and it, it definitely did. It's definitely increased since maybe like 2017 or something. But yeah, I mean, it, I think it's 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 whichever manager he has at the time. It's according to their whims, and and it's it's about it's about reading the situation correctly, which is a defining trait of a defensive midfielder: reading every situation correctly and not making mistakes. And he's a master at it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right then, who's in at three? This is a player who is a little different to the others in this list and it will answer some of the questions maybe some listeners have had running through this process so far, which is, you know, what defines a number six or a defensive midfielder? Does he have to play on his own or can he play in a pair? Because I have picked a player here who more often than not, in fact, way more often than not, plays in a pair. I could not leave out Joshua Kimmich from the list of the best defensive midfielders in world football. Plays by Munich plays the role just about as well as anybody. I've got him at number three. He plays in a in a midfield pair, mostly with Leon Goretzka for Bayern Munich and actually quite often for Germany as well. But he's always the more defensive-minded of the pair. He's never the one that goes shuttling off with the ball. Goretzka's the ball carrier. He's the explosive box-to-box player. Kimmich is the guy that mines things in the background. And his defensive skill set isn't necessarily the best part of his game, but it's still better than almost everybody else's because the best parts of his game are his passing and his crossing and his set-piece delivery, and they're all better than anybody else's combined. So he's just a wonderful, wonderful, special player. There's even a valid debate to be had as to whether or not this is even his best position. And yet, even if it's not, he's better than almost everybody at it as well. This guy is incredible. And the technical level is amazing. But underlining all of his his abilities are just a ridiculous determination and work rate. Like, there aren't many players in the game that work as hard as him and look as determined as him. And when you ally that with his natural ability, you get this. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting here, Sam, is that that kind of journey from right back to 
defensive midfielder has been you know a good one for German football of late right and, and over the last sort of 20 years we've seen Philip Lahm do it and and now Kimmich to it probably an even greater level I think at this point probably not as good a right back but I, I think definitely a better defensive midfielder the other thing about this is that I know you've just said there about him playing in a pivot and playing in a two but it's often with Leon Goretzka, right, who streams forward, who gets into the box, who is that traditional kind of number eight box-to-box role in in many ways, um, which kind of does leave Kimmich often as the lone pivot. And if you said to me tomorrow that Bayern was starting a game with Kimmich in the pivot on his own, I wouldn't be bothered by it whatsoever. I wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it wouldn't worry me. I think he's more than capable of doing that, of playing that role, um, of, of being able to you kind of be the kind of lone guy at the bottom of a triangle. It just so happens that Bayern kind of push it as a as a 4-2-3-1 as opposed to a traditional 4-3-3 they just invert the diamond uh, invert the triangle but not really in terms of actual game state especially with you know how far forward and how high tempo buy and play upper pitch right um th- there's this kind of element of of this that we're looking at Kimmich and thinking he has become the kind of poster boy of this move from defense into midfield um, of late, at the very least. And it does get you thinking about, you know, how players read the game, how players are, are taught to develop in different positions. Um, but there is a, you know, that ultimate question we've seen Bayern of late lacking a right back, really struggling to fill the team because they haven't had enough players to fit back in. And Kimmich has become so central to this Bayern team in the middle that they actually are, are forcing players into really uncomfortable positions rather than shifting Joshua Kimmich back into right back. And I think that's an incredible statement of not only belief in him from, from his manager, but also just kind of how crucial he is to everything that happens in this Bayern team. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, actually, he's not even the only example in the last sort of three, four years we've got from Bayern of a, of a manager just clearly identifying a certain player and his traits perfect for a certain role and refusing to move him. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, pre-Alfonso Davies breakout at left back, that Bayern were really struggling for a left sider. And you've got David Alaba right there, dude, but he would not move him. He would not take him out of central defence. It was really obvious that Hansi Flick at the time valued what Alaba brought to central defence so strongly that he refused to move him over to left back when it was kind of crying out for it at a certain point. Then Fonzie broke out, all good, no problem. Then Alaba left, so it doesn't really matter. But Kimmich is another example. It's basically just the next example, and that's what's happening right now for Bayern Munich. They don't want to move him, and I don't blame them. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more in in many many ways, Sam. I couldn't agree more. It's it, it's a really intriguing one as to what the role develops, and obviously as we go through this, this is going to change, and the conversation kind of you know weaves and meanders through what a defensive midfielder is and and what they have to be to to fit themselves into this list. But I think by the time we get to the end of this uh, this ranking, and by the time we get through all five, and the people who who maybe just about missed out will have a clear idea of what that role means uh, and what yes. it means differently to different teams Mm, absolutely yeah shall I move on to number two yes but this is probably potentially a bit of a contentious shout but this is why I've put Rodri of Manchester City I think that this season's been a bit of a game changer for him and he's finally ascended into this kind of new echelon and I'm I'm pretty much ready to call Rodri a world-class player I think a couple of things have basically clicked for him this season um I think he might have just finally 100% got used to the the speed of the Premier of the Premier League, and it's something he definitely did. It's a bit cliche, but like he definitely did struggle with it a little bit to start with. There are a couple of stray passes here and there, maybe one or two sloppy balls per game that 
had the crowd kind of groaning a little bit. He's cut those out completely. I think he's also gained a lot of confidence from the fact that he is now top dog at Man City. You know, he came in as Fernandinho's understudy. He has long surpassed Fernandinho now, who was mid-30s and basically getting towards the end of his career. And and Rodri's, Rodri's the alpha in, in that midfield. And he, I think it's just given him a bit of a boost. Like he's just, he's, he's got a bit, bit more of an edge, more confidence, and he's playing like he knows it's his spot and it's his midfield. And you watch City recently, man, and it, it really is his midfield. When Rodri's on the pitch, he's in charge. And we always talk about how Manchester City is so good at trapping teams into their own third. And that's because someone like Rodri can patrol and sweep across the midfield and cut out all of those those out balls that go to strikers and prevent teams from getting out of their own half by anticipating different movements and passes and, and cutting them out and then recycling it. You know, his role is basically intercept, pass to Cancelo, intercept, pass to Cancelo. He scored the odd screamer, obviously, but it sounds simple, but it's really, really not. It's 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 the bread and butter of, of the best number sixes. And Rodri, Rodri is here. And I still think he's he's more or less the the ideal sort of 2022 holding midfielder in terms of his somatotype. You know, he's six foot three, he's relatively mobile, he's but he's definitely strong and he's stocky and he's authoritative. He has also learned how to get away with one too many yellow card challenges and not be punished for it. Of course, he spent the last three years training with Fernandinho, so I'm not surprised. Um, but all of this makes up basically the perfect number six for today's game. And Rodri, I think this season, the leap he has taken has just astounded me. I'm so impressed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think too, back to, to when Rodri signed. And was it was it Fred they tried to sign before Rodri? Was that? Supposedly. Was that- but they, yeah, they were linked with Fred. They were also well, it was, it was with... legit. It, well, they did genuinely look at him. Yeah, um, and Jorginho linked... too. And, yeah, and Jorginho. And if I'm not that's mistaken, right. was it not was it either not Saul or Koke? Um, they were linked with another. I remember them being linked with a different Atleti midfielder because I remember Sam and I sitting and being well, like, they were linked I don't to really what, understand they... what, what they're yeah, doing. I think it was the wrong one, wasn't Rodri. it? They were linked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but now Rodri, this season particularly, has been immense. I mean, nine times out of ten, he'll complete the ninety. I think it also has helped him this season, the makeup of Man City's midfield. I think that uh, the way that they have set up, particularly Bernardo Silva since he's been in there, I think I think that he's been a really helpful midfield partner for him and some of the attributes he's got in that deeper role. Yeah, I think Rodri's been absolutely immense at what he's been doing. So it's a bit, bit weird for me to put Rodri, I think, uh, fundamentally. There's one part of me that's like, you've put Rodri ahead of Kimmich, Sam. Are you mad? Like, Kimmich is, I think he's a better footballer than Rodri. He's a better footballer than most people. But in the context of who is the better defensive midfielder, there are things that Rodri has, and it's mostly due to his size, which is nothing that Kimmich can control. But it's his size and his aerial ability and the, the bits that you can add in that part of the game that just make him a perfect slot in for this kind of position and it's a bit contradictory for me to to put Rodri ahead of Kimmich in my mind because I don't think that that's how I'd rank them if I'm saying who is the best footballer but that's where it comes down to the specifics of the role and that's where it comes down to what you need as a number six and I just think Rodri ticks every single box in that area yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think that's the the kind of key element, though the the fact that it it's what he brings to this team. It's the fact that he is now uh, an absolutely undroppable key element, and that when Rodri isn't playing, and I agree, I think you'd say the same about Casemiro. You'd say the same about Kimmich. You'd say the same about Brozovic. But when he isn't playing. The difference is so stark uh, and the comfort with which he has, you know, developed into a role where, you know, we talk about Kimmich and we talk about playing with box to box number number eights and in the likes of Goretzka. 
Rodri just sits behind a front five on his own. <laughs> In fact, it's often a front seven because both wing backs have decided that they're going to go flying forward into the attack as well. He just sits there and like mops up. And that's the kind of, I don't know, maybe the traditional image of the number six, right? That mm. someone who is able to sit there and mop up the danger and and just kind of be on the edge. But Rodri also just occasionally unleashes a 30-yard howitzer. And you're a bit like, hang on, where's that come from? Like, that, that's yeah. not, that wasn't part of the rules. Um, and I do think that, you know, over the course of the last three years, we've seen that development. When he signed for Man City, I thought he had the potential to go on and be one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. But not everyone makes, you know, not everyone makes that leap. Not every signing works. Not every player mm. takes a takes a jump to the Premier League and is able to step up. Roger has stepped up so far in these last couple of years. I think it's perfectly reasonable that you've put him into this place at the list. Yeah, football seasons are so long that it, it feels totally normal to, to be considering Rodri as you know a world class holding midfielder, one of the best in the world, uh, an undrop, undroppable piece of Manchester City's uh, brilliant, brilliant template. He didn't start the Champions League final last season. Yeah, well, he played Gundogan what, there instead. That's been widely considered a mistake. <laughs> of course, but this is you. You now I know Pep is Pep, but you would not dream of not playing Rodri in the Champions League final this season if they make it right. And that's yeah. that's the progression. That's the leap. That's the difference. Rodri has come on so far in the last seven or eight months. It's just sometimes you have to remember exactly where he was at that point because it feels like so long ago. And it, it kind of was, but it wasn't always the way, this wasn't always the case with Rodri. He wasn't always just like this pivotal player in midfield, the spine of the team, the undroppable piece. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. I would I would agree with all of the all of the bits above. Mm. Um, which takes us on, Sam, to number one. To number one, I think the best number six in the world is Fabinho of Liverpool. I think he's the best. He's, he's he's really got to this point now. He is the complete package. He is absolutely everything. I just can't really pick a, a a fault in his game, no matter how hard I try. He is first of all the complete physical package. He's about six two. He's got great agility and mobility. He beats Rodri in terms of mobility and, and agility. Great coverage of the pitch. Extremely tactically disciplined. Extremely clever. Another one who's come from right back. Just for the notes there, I was Jack. Say yeah, yeah. Another one from right back. But he does a much better job here than your likes of Rodri and your likes of Casemiro in that weird avoidance of yellow cards. He actually just doesn't really foul that many people and he doesn't walk the tightrope in the way that those others do. On the ball, I think he's underrated in terms of his press resistance. I think he's underrated in terms of his long-range passing because Van Dijk steals the show and, and that's fair enough, but Fabinho can do it too. There's a touch of sloppiness sometimes in the short game, but again, no one's actually perfect. Underrated vision, though. I don't think enough people realise how good he is at passing long. But the biggest compliment I think I can play for, pay Fabinho is so, like sometimes I swear there's two or three of him on the pitch. Like how do, how how is he teleporting from one part to the other? There was a game earlier this season against Leeds where I was adamant that there was more than one Fabinho. They'd cloned him. Like his ability to read the game and anticipate is nothing short of sensational. And the real kicker here in terms of me putting a number one was I tried to think of a team, a manager, a system and a league that he wouldn't just slot in and immediately excel for. And I came up with nothing, absolutely nothing. There are certain players on this list who are a bit more specific and that's okay. But Fabinho, I think, could just play anywhere for anyone, for anyone and be the best. I think that's a, that's a, that's a hell of a thing. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's it, it's too difficult to disagree with you, Sam. Would be the would be the take. I think there are there are people who will, and I don't think that's it's a very tight at the top, isn't it? That's that's the thing. Oh, you like that phrase, don't you? I do love the phrase tight at the top, but uh, you know, in in this in this regard, there's also this kind of element of who you sue, right? And who what what kind of the game you sue? And I I actually think that in in this regard, you look at like the the difference between Rodri and Fabinho, and you think what is the difference both in just that Fabinho fits perfectly um, at Liverpool, and if you switch them round, who would struggle more? And I think the answer is Rodri slightly but not by huge amounts. Um, and, and it's about how, how you fit within a system as well as anything else, right? Because you could shift some of these players around to different clubs in Europe and they might not be as, as comfortable and as good as they are right now. And so part of this discussion in itself, right, is how well do you fit exactly what's wanted of you within the system you're currently in? And, and that's obviously going to be, uh, you know, a question that kicks onwards in terms of who are the next people who move into this discussion, who move into this debate, who are the those who slightly missed out? And how much of that is due to the fact that they might not be quite within the system they'd fit perfectly? Now, Rodri's maybe the, the, the odd one out in that regard in that he feels like he has morphed into the player that Pep wants. And that's due to brilliant coaching, obviously, as much as anything else. But it is also about giving someone the time to settle, giving them the ability to learn from a player, in this case, Fernandinho, who was there in their stead, um, and, and then eventually becoming reliant on them. So I, I suppose the the kind of follow-up question to how brilliant Fabinho is, is who else is going to be in this list in two years' time? Who are the players who, who missed out slightly, probably because they're, at the moment, a little bit younger in their careers? Well, yeah, there's a little list here. I mean, I've always got a little list, haven't I? Before we go into the ones that may grow into this, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sergio Busquets, who I did not put in the top five and obviously isn't going to be in the top five in two years' time. He's not going to get better at this point, but for a decade, really, really stole the show in this position and was the best of the best. I think he's just ever so slightly just ever so slightly part, uh, below his, his top level nowadays. I don't think it's it's a... It's sacrilege to say that and Busquets just misses out, but shouts out to him who defined the role for so long. The players, the player that that could genuinely be in this list quite soon is Declan Rice. Now, I don't know if the thing that maybe stops that is maybe he decides that actually he is a box-to-box number eight and he's fed up of holding and he wants to go and score 10 goals a season because there are times when he really threatens that. But right now, in terms of a patrolling midfielder, as someone who can break up play, and as we saw for England and for West Ham over the last 18 months, he is on the verge. He's on the verge. And 12 months ago, indeed, he would have been on the verge too. He just hasn't had his best year. Not all his fault. Sometimes he's playing he's getting with, pushed into centre back. Yeah, sometimes he's playing a defensive line, um, and it, he lacks compared to these guys. I think in the passing range um, and the, and the, the sort of tempo controlling ability, um, which is no no mean thing. Like obviously these players are unbelievable, but he just he just just misses out ever so slightly. I think some would argue for Jorginho. I think he's too specific to be listed as an overall sort of top five midfielder. I think he really is a case of if the system doesn't suit you, you are in trouble. Luckily, lots of managers have been smart enough to sort of build it around him, so it's okay. But Declan Rice is the one here that I'm looking at and I'm thinking, could be in a couple of years. Frankie de Jong as well. Depends exactly how his coach sees him over the next couple of years. I don't know exactly where. I don't know where he ends up. But Rice and Frankie are the ones that I was like, hmm, in two years, it's possible. 
Yeah, um, uh, Frankie was the one I was interested in. Um, I know that we've talked on this pod long term about Declan Rice and what what he does and what he wants to become and if he can become that kind of explosive eight. And and I think that Dean would be the first to say that he thinks that that is going to be something that he looks to do because he wants to bring that into his game. Um, But Frankie's the one that interests me, I think, because... There are elements of his game at the moment where he doesn't feel like a, anywhere near a six. In fact, the fact that he is, you know, diving into, you know, challenges in midfield, winning it, carrying it to the edge of the opposition box, and in some cases, scoring screamers from the edge of the opposition box doesn't feel hugely like he's playing that role. But it's definitely felt more like what he was doing at Ajax, where he was controlling from deep um, mm. and, and able to kind of dictate from the base of a midfield. That's changed a little bit at Barcelona. But you know, someone that you mentioned there, obviously Busquets, is still that role. Uh, at Barca and it feels like he has the kind of well (laughs) and rightly so at this point obviously but he is still that kind of veteran presence that they need controlling things there obviously Nico's come in as well and and there's that element of is he the kind of what Barcelona see as that kind of more physical long-term presence in the base of that midfield the you know Busquets of this new generation if you will and where does that leave Frankie in terms of what his future position is someone that I thought you might include or thought you might at least discuss was Dennis Zachariah, who's obviously finally got that big move hmm. to a, a Champions League club, to an, to an elite level club in Juventus um, and whether he you know, might be in this conversation in a, in a little while. So I had another list of five. You know, I've always got like subsidiary lists, right? And I got another five and I got another five. I've just got long, long lists of players in my notes. There's another five players here who, again, it's uh, it depends on, depends on how their coaches see them for the most part. But um, it's Zachariah, it's Ismail Benacer at Milan, it's Rodrigo Bentancur at Tottenham, it's 10 Cope Miners at Atalanta, and of course, the ever sturdy Idrissa Gay at PSG. They're not top five material. They're just not. Some of them might be in the future. I don't know. And Benacer in particular is someone I really, really like. But that's another little list of players there. You're like, hmm, okay, interesting. Could do. And there is a little list of players there. Maybe take out Benton Kerr, but definitely someone like Benacer and, and Cope Miners. Like, if you are a super club and you have ident- you identified that you need a you need a, a long-term holding midfielder, then you could do a lot worse than pick those guys up just before they hit their peak. I mean, all that's left to do, Sam, here off the back of those five and off the lists of other defensive midfielders kind of in the in, in the next generation or at least just outside this top five is to ask the kind of burning overarching question. What is a defensive midfielder? What is a number six? What are, what are the criteria? Now you've nailed them off. What's the yeah. criteria that you needed for someone to be in this list? I mean, you can split it off into like four or five different branches and it's an incredibly complex role. So, so difficult in the modern game with the speed of play happening around you and the technical levels that they were now showing at the top level. Like it's it's so difficult to play this role, to be able to cut it technically wise, to be able to read the game and play against the very best and stop them from what they're doing and have all the physical attributes you need to complete that role. It's just incredible. So I'd boil it down to the the physical stuff. Height is very important. A lot of the players that I included are six foot or more, and that's what a lot of top clubs like in their number sixes. In fact, Kimmich is the only one that, that busts the trend there. But strength, is also key, obviously, becoming almost like that second aerial presence and the the sort of fill-in centre-back at times. You still need to be able to be tall enough. Agility and mobility as well. So you need the height and the strength and the agility and the mobility, the ability to cover the ground, to go sideways, to go forward and back. Then you need the defensive nous, reading of the game, anticipation, but you need to tie that in with discipline to make sure that you're not sent off all the time. Then you need to be good on the ball. 
take the ball under pressure from your centre-backs, pass security, press resistance, vision, passing range, be able to start attacks from deep. Then, if you can, if you can, why not add in a bit of goal threat as well, like Casemiro does? I mean, how much have I just covered there? How difficult is that? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the most difficult role on the pitch. I don't, I, which is why there's about five of them. Well, which is why they're always <laughs> in such high demand, right? And, and and which is why so many teams are crying out for a player of this mould who are, you know, we see teams all the time being like, why haven't we got a Casemiro? Where's our Fabinho? You know, and yeah. it's because they're rare. Players who can do all these <laughs> yeah. things, and especially ones who can hold a pivot on their own while other teams get uh, the rest of their team can attack around them are inc- you know are worth their well, worth more their weight in gold we we had a discussion recently that worth their weight in gold is actually not a particularly good phrase but um they were, <laughs> because gold isn't worth all that much anymore but um yeah. i think casemiro is worth about 3 million in gold which is nothing worth <laughs> their weight in bitcoins um but it, it does feel like uh, across the course of uh, of this we we've looked at some players who are not all the same but all possess many of the same traits and those traits are the ones that you just reeled off and uh, so I think that's a, as about as good as a defensive midfielder definition as you're going to find anywhere uh, so well done very very well done it's a, it's not an easy list to compile um, and, and not an easy list to uh, to put together so fair play to you Sam um, after the break of course we're going to be looking at Mel of the Week the gibberish rankings and we're going to be revealing the winner of our Porto kit giveaway don't go anywhere Welcome back to the final part of Rags FC, where it's time for everybody's favourite part of the week. DJ, it's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Michael Keane. Oh, I mean, bad, bad times for Everton, especially bad times for Everton's centre-backs. And Michael Keane had... One of the worst nights I've probably ever seen in football. Um, Let's go back to Everton's 5-0 defeat on Monday um, at the hands of Tottenham. And Michael Keane had an absolute mare. First of all, he turned in Ryan Sessegnon's cross to his own net to give Tottenham the lead. Then he failed to keep tabs on Dejan Kulusevski as he set up Son for the second. And then he was basically out sprinted by Harry Kane for the third, like totally his fault at that point, but still not ideal. To make matters worse, Mason Holgate then smashes the ball into his face and he has to be tested for concussion. And then he gets taken off at halftime. It's as bad a first half as I've ever seen anyone have at this level of football. Frank Lampard working absolute wonders on this Everton team. Michael (laughs) Keane, you are melon of the week. Like, it's not all his fault, uh, I would say. Um, he's not been given almost any protection. They are tactically no. maybe one of the Yesterday, that was one of the most inept tactical displays from anyone I've ever seen. Um, but equally, it, it didn't really help. Didn't it? Jared Braithwaite came on, didn't do much, really got, got worse. Mm. Um you know, it just, it wasn't great vibes, really, frankly. Um, but the problem is that, like, Michael Keane is definitely just not that bad. Oh, like, no, you, no. Do you know I mean? You like, get exposed Michael, at times like this, though. Michael like, Keane has 12 England caps. Yeah, no, now, Michael know, Keane's, you know, he's been talked about for big transfers at times, too. But, you know, when when your team's in the gutter, um, it's tough to get out. And like, he's the last line of defence. 
partnership with Mason Holgate isn't also, looking great. I think Mason Holgate might actually be worse. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible partnership right now. And Holgate might be worse, but Keane is the guy, was the full guy in this instance and didn't help his teammates smashing the ball into his own face like that for sure. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a meme. Uh, Everton might be a meme by the end of the season. Yeah, it does feel that way. It does feel that way. Um, there's not much you could do when you have a night like that apart from get yourself substituted and you managed to do that. So uh, Yeah, two big he's... home games coming up for Everton back to back and they, if they don't win those... They're doomed. Could be, could be all trouble. Okay, yes, Michael Keane, Melon of the Week, very much so. Uh, a good one, Dean, so fair play. Um, right, let's do some admin. Not done some admin in a while, Sam. Um, I'm going to reveal the winner of our Porto kit giveaway, the signed Porto shirt um, from that episode that we did with New Balance. Obviously, lots of lots of signings. Um, I have spent the morning compiling a spreadsheet of over 450 names across the course of the Twitter retweets and wow. Instagram reshares. Um, shout out to everyone who did it twice. I've noticed a few of you in there, so you are in <laughs> you are in there twice um, if you did it on both platforms. Uh, find out if that gives you the advantage um right so i'm gonna do a random number generator between one and 463 bang number 271 that is dan hiscock dan hiscock you have Yay. won you are the winner of the signed porto shirt so get in touch drop us a dm on twitter or instagram uh, and we will get that shirt over to you thank you to everybody who entered thank you to everyone who retweeted who shared on instagram and uh, we'll hopefully have some more giveaways very soon uh we uh, can't say too much more than that right now but it does look possible so that's very exciting and Dan's a lucky man. What a shirt. What a shirt it is. What a shirt it is. Yeah. Mm. So Dan, get in touch. Um, and Sam. It's the gibberish alarm. Okay. This week, it is three anecdotes from a man who lives on a building site. Uh, that man is me. I live on a building site or right next to one. I'm looking at it right now. I'm about 20 metres away from the most God almighty construction site because I live on a new build development and they're building a series of blocks of flats just opposite my house right now. It's awesome. So here are three anecdotes from my time here on this building site. Um, we'll start with the fact that my house vibrates from 7am till 6pm every day except Sunday. It kind of sucks. I don't really like it. Uh, it's pretty jarring to wake up to when, you're, when you're, your walls and your whole house is vibrating and, of course, everything in it as well, so your bed is vibrating. Um, it's pretty jarring when you're walking along the corridor and suddenly the banister just starts shaking. Um, it's pretty jarring when you walk through a door frame and you just hear a little noise from it. You think, are you going to collapse on me? Um, it's not nice, and I, hope it, I really hope it, it finishes quite soon because I'm fed up of walking around and just feeling reverberations coming from the foundations of my house. People pay it's for this really kind of stuff, pleasant. man. Like, um, you know, they're like gym plates and stuff where you stand on it and it vibrates, right? People pay for this kind of thing and you're getting it for free 24 hours a day. Like you, you should be grateful, my guy. Um, yeah. Well, have you seen my glutes? I might have to, I might have to take, you know, as, as, a, as a random aside, um, earlier in the year, I decided to, to become a part owner of a horse. Um, and now a part owner is the key element here. I own about a percent of the tail. Um, but anyway, I went to see said horse. Um, she's lovely, very nice horse. Um, but she gets to, after she goes for a run, she stands on this vibrating metal plate and it helps her, helps her muscles relax and stuff. So 
what I might do is bin off the training fees and just bring her around your yard. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. and then she can just stand yeah. there in your house for a bit and then I'll take her back. So what you're saying is stop moaning, Sam. You've got free access to elite physiotherapy. Exactly. Exactly. I can't right, believe well, Matt okay. anecdote one is I've got free physio for the last year. <laughs> yeah, well, those things you don't know about living on a building site. Anyway, into number two. Um, there is some joy I can take from this situation. I very often go and stand on my balcony and um, I watch I watch what they're doing. I can see over the wall from the balcony and I can see all the men at work. And it's quite interesting, actually. I've, de- I've, I've adopted that Italian old man habit of standing there with my hands behind my back and just watching construction work. Um, I like to do it in kind of like a sinister, kind of like um, dark, shadowy way. I like to narrow my eyes so it looks like I'm eviling the workers. And uh, I like to think that I'm spurring them on to work quicker so that my house will stop vibrating. But I am quite enjoying watching the construction work. And there's this big machine they've got, mate. It's, it's like, it's a digger, obviously. But what they do with it when they try to dig a big hole is rather than just start scooping stuff out, they take the bottom side of it and they bash it against the floor. to I think to break up the rocks below and break, and, and break up the soil so it's easier to scoop out. Again, a massive source of the vibrations, reverberations in my house that I hate. But watching them just go absolutely mad with this big digger smashing the earth, like a toddler smashing his knife and fork on the dining room table when he doesn't want his dinner. It's absolutely amazing. I've clocked hours just watching them do this one thing. And then they scoop up the dirt and then some little like other smaller truck scoots along with its like, you know, the thing where you collect all the dirt in the back and he fills it all up and he scoots off and probably dumps it in someone's garden or the pond or something. I don't know. And then he comes back and as they've smashed up the earth again, it is actually quite entertaining, you know? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're getting entertainment. It's like watching like a toy. Um, like my brother used to love like construction toys and that when he was younger and he used to have like a little mat where he'd like drive them around on, on, on that. So I assume it's a bit like yeah. watching that in real life. So I can, I can understand the appeal. Yeah. A bit like that. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Um, okay. Like free Bob one. the Builder. <laughs> real life bob the builder yeah. right last one there was a time when i was convinced they'd found alien artifacts in the construction site <laughs> they were doing their digging oh, God. why are you laughing just, this is very you sure but they were doing their digging they were doing their smashing they were doing all the stuff with the big diggers and at a certain point they paused and stopped and someone got out and looked down and then another person joined them and looked down as well and then they conferred with a few more people and then six more people came over and they all conferred with each other then they all left and some dudes in like white hazmat came over and started like full hazmat suits and started looking into the hole and i was like what have they found? Like they've found aliens or alien artifacts or like a really old jar from like 7,000 years ago. It's going to be worth billions. This is unbelievable. A really have, old is that, jar. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about artifacts. Who knows? And we don't know what it was. But anyway, I got really excited. I was watching it, tracking it. It was out there for hours, to be honest with you. And they did that thing where they then created a perimeter around it. And then they did a, like a tent thing. Now, you've seen Thor, right? When his hammer drops to the oh, yeah, 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 yeah and they did that mate and i was like this is it they've like they found a transformer this is this is this is optimus prime it's buried 40 yards from my house so i started i told a few a few of the guys in the neighborhood whatsapp group i was like i think they found something really interesting and one of the dudes just walked up onto his roof looked over and went oh yeah that's asbestos <laughs> And I was like, what do you mean that's asbestos? They go, oh yeah, they do that when they find asbestos. So they've got to dispose with it safely. It's poisonous. So you have to be careful. So they've just, they've called. I was like, no, no. It's a transformer. 
Are you sure it's not Optimus Prime? Anyway, it turns out it was definitely asbestos, or that's at least what they'll tell you. Um, you never know. Yeah, you you do never know. That is you true. never know. That's true. I've, I, when when I was at uni, my ceiling fell in when I was in halls in first year, and uh, then the entire halls got to be evacuated because they found asbestos, and we all had to be moved into a different hall for one of the parts of my yeah. year. So yeah. that was fun. Uh, I've got an asbestos yeah. story too, but I didn't at any point think my ceiling <laughs> falling in was going to give me Optimus Prime. So there's perhaps the difference in our stories. Um, right. And on that bombshell, I think we're going to call this a day. And all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much to the rank officer, Sam Tai. Cheers, buddy. Thank you very much, Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. Congratulations to Dan Hiscock, the winner of our Porto shirt giveaway. Make sure you contact us and we will get that over to you. Thank you as ever so much for listening today. I've been Jack Collins. This has been Ranks FC. Again, we'd massively appreciate it if you gave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you choose to listen to this podcast. It really does help us make a difference. Um, Take care wherever you are. Thanks again for listening. I've been Jack Collins. This has been Ranks FC. Take it easy.